0: podcast i am max i am rich and on this podcast we will be focusing on the weird war tales comic book series published by dc comics from 1971 to 1983 on this episode episode number 35 of the show we'll be taking a look at weird war tales number 30 but before we get down to business rich has a little retroactive history for you
1: Yes, Mike Stewart wrote in wondering if we were going to do a special mission of the Haunted Tank miniseries. While I still stand by my earlier statement that the Intel Report is more a vehicle for you all to go out and check out some of the other great war horror titles, the question did get me thinking a bit after we recorded the last episode. So we're going to meet you halfway. I have created an Intel Report photo album on the Facebook page to refresh your memories from past shows. Vote on your favorite, and once a year, we'll do a special mission based on your feedback. Who says we don't listen to the fans? And uh, speaking of an Intel report that should get a lot of votes, the earliest Intel yet, DC Horror Presents, Sergeant Rock versus the Army of the Dead. (gasps) A six-issue miniseries written by Bruce Campbell with art by Eduardo Rizzo. That's due to be released in September of 2022, Berlin, 1944. The Nazis are flanked on all fronts by the combined Allied forces, and defeat seems inevitable. In a last-ditch effort to turn the tide of the war, Hitler and his team of evil scientists create a serum that resurrects their dead soldiers, creating an army of the dead even stronger than they were in life. Sergeant Rock and Easy Company find themselves dispatched to the enemy territory to face off against the strangest, most horrific enemies they've encountered yet Nazi zombies. Or, as I call it, Sergeant Rock storms Castle Wolfenstein. Cannot freaking wait. <laughs> <laughs> Who wants some? You want some? <laughs> you damn right, I want some. <laughs> I want some.
0: I want all of it. Yeah, yeah. You and Castle Wolfenstein. A little bit of history there, that's for sure.
1: <laughs> Dating uh, myself just a touch. <laughs> oh
0: my God. So, with that retroactive history, that awesome intel report out of the way, we will take a small break to promote someone else's excellent show. And when we get back, Rich, will hit you up with the cover detail.
1: Calabac, decide. It is I, Darkseid. I command you to listen to the Who's Who podcast. Uncover the powers and weaknesses of the Super Friends so that I may destroy them. Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour. There are all these people, man. They're all part of the D.C. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Mr. Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Etric, Anerizia, and, and Woody Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the D.C. Who's who? Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe. Available monthly at
0: fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. And we're back. So, as I mentioned before the break, we're going to take a look at Weird War Tales number 30. And Rich is here, as always, to give you the cover detail.
1: Art by the Iron Man, Luis Dominguez. Still only 20 cents. The yellow weird war tales is excellently offset by a black background. Under a large yellow sun, four Americans engaged in battle charge past a hut. Inside the hut, a skeletal arm draped in rags gestures to the closest GI running by the doorway, who's loaded with gear and carrying what appears to be a Thompson. The look of shock on the GI's face is understandable. Cover date, October 1974. Date of release, July 23rd, 1974. No killjoy. On to the CNC. c We've had a few covers where the action was framed by a doorway, tunnel, etc. I like them all. LD does great work here. The rags of the skeletal arm look like they were once a uniform. There's a rat in one corner of the doorway and a couple of buckets in the other next to what appears to be a torn wood from an earlier bullet strike. The interior of the hut is deep shadow keep running yank yeah this this is
0: one of my favorite covers yet even counting the qbert covers Luis might not be the same caliber of name as joe but the work here speaks loudly and carries a big stick everything about this works perfectly the way the central image pops the way the angle of the doorway draws your eye down to the bony beckoning hand and how the skeletal arm draws you into the foreground. Also, besides the excellent design elements, there's the actual drawing and coloring work, which is absolutely superb. On the ethereal side of things, the cover perfectly captures the tone that the series is supposed to be trying to sell to the reader. I'd put this one up as one of the top candidates for a poster that represents the entire series. So me, likey. Okay, so now that we got that excellent cover out of the way, I am going to start us off with the first full-length story in the issue. It is entitled Elements of Death. <gasps> it is nine pages long, script by David Michelinie, art by Jerry Taleok. The synopsis is as follows. November 1942, the Nazi concentration camp near Poznań, Poland. Commandant Helmut Oberling loved to cause pain, and the war had provided him many opportunities to inflict it. Just that morning, he had laughed watching Jewish inmates choke to death in their poison gas shower, a special excruciating formula he had ordered Dr. Cooper to create taking effect on the prisoners. But a running aide ruins Oberling's fun when he announces General Wolfschmidt had arrived with a special prisoner for the colonel to interrogate. It's believed the POW knows the location of the resistance headquarters in Poznań, and Oberling's reputation for persuading difficult prisoners is well known. Oberling salutes and gets right to work, offering the POW a chance to cooperate. The prisoner, Captain Andrew Corbett, only gives his name, rank, and serial number. Oberling slaps him and orders him stripped and tied to a chair. Hey. You know, we all have our kinks. But uh, in the days that follow, the drowned flyer is subjected to every cruelty Oberling's sadistic talents can devise. And Corbett's mind and body twists and tears with unbearable agony. I think that's a direct quote from the excellent captions in the story, too. Uh finally, Corbett cracks and gives them 15 Litov Street. Oberling decides to lead the raid himself and gives Corbett the reward of a nice... Shower. He enjoys a cigarette and hears Corbett's screams as the American dies. That night, Oberling breaks down the door of fifteen Lytov Street and leads his men inside. He's horrified to discover General Wolfschmidt entertaining his mistress. Oh! <laughs> the furious general orders Oberling out, promising to take the colonel's command from him for his error. Enraged, Oberling returns to camp and demands Corbett to be brought before him. The flyer will pay for humiliating Helmet Oberling. Oberling is dismayed when his aide reminds him that Corbett is already dead. Revenge is impossible. A few nights later, Oberling is being driven into town when his driver thinks he sees landmines on the road in front of them. He swerves the car and crashes off the road. Oberling is thrown clear, but the driver is killed. There are no mines to be seen. The town is across from a marsh, and Oberling chooses to walk through it to get to town. He can't see anything in the darkness as he plunges deeper into the swamp. A voice makes Oberling spin around. It's Corbett, standing in the middle of the marsh in only his shorts. It can't be! You're dead! Corbett replies with, you're quite right, I am. Oberling pulls out his Luger and opens fire. The rounds have no effect, and Corbett laughs as Oberling charges, meaning to deal with the American with his bare hands. The German passes through Corbett's form and tumbles down a steep ditch, breaking his leg. Corbett laughs and vanishes. Oberling's injury is severe, he can't move, and no one hears his pleas for help as the cold night wears on. But as the sun comes up, he hears voices nearby. As Oberling tries to call out to them, he starts to gasp and choke. Ten yards away, two German soldiers in gas masks are dumping the new poison gas that Oberling was using on his own prisoners into the swamp. It was odd that Dr. Kruper had called and ordered the new gas to be destroyed because it was too inhumane. It had never stopped him before. He also had an odd accent almost sounded like that dead American. But what was most peculiar was that Kruper had insisted the gas be dumped in this particular marsh. This is a dead marsh, one of the Germans replied. There's nothing for the gas to destroy, but snakes, rats, and other vermin. Neither sees Oberling's corpse as they drive off. (laughs) The end. And Rich has a little killjoy to give you the end of this story right here.
1: I couldn't find a Poznaw in western Poland, but there's a Poznan, formerly Pozen, that had a concentration camp nearby. Also, how did Captain Corbett even get to western Poland? The Army Air Force wasn't flying missions anywhere near that deep into enemy territory in November of 1942. He flew through a cloud, and then when he came out the other side...
0: This is Weird War Tales, man. Soldiers are always being teleported all over the place.
1: Temporal Vortex.
0: Yes. <laughs> yeah. Temporal Spatial Vortex. It's the Poland Triangle. I don't know, but it's Weird War Tales, baby. So comments and commendations on this one. I got to say, I liked it, but parts of it were a little creaky for me. To get the ending he wanted, Michelini had to have the ghost make the phone call to have the gas dumped. Even if he didn't need to have the ghost cause Oberling to trip into the marsh, he could have just broken his leg in that fall, which I'll get back to. Maybe I'm just nitpicking Uh because I grew up on a lot of Michelinie's later writing. Iron Man, whatnot. I did enjoy how Oberling's arrogance led him to rushing off on Corbett's bogus tip without even sending anyone to vet it first. It, it still works really well, and Corbett's ghostly appearance in the marsh is kind of fun. I mean, it's weird war tales, so, you know, I, I can't be knocking that down too hard. Spotlights for me were, as usual, Teleoc's logo work is stellar, can love that logo for the story on the splash page. I love the shot of Oberling being thrown from the car on page six, panel three. And here's what I said I'd get back to. The angle he's flying at makes it a little hard to believe, to believe him in the next panel when he thinks that he was not hurt much, though. I mean, he's going like goofy out of that thing. It's like, <laughs> so, just no, that's instant death. But anyway, <laughs> it's it's still, it's a hell of a fine panel to look at. And the final panel of the story is also just great so excellent cover really fun first story we're
1: off and running this is one of the first comic stories written by Michelani. and a good one it is even if it is just a take on the classic live by the sword die by the sword yarn you know like Last issues, for example, Telex art is really good, too. Two panels talk me the loudest. Page three, panel four, the mosaic of Corbett's tortures with the reds, blacks, and yellows is one that, almost unfortunately, makes you stop and examine the details. And page eight, panel five, Orbeling's pain-filled face with angled sunbeams and five o'clock shadow after a night in the marsh is also haunting. But hey, screw him. <laughs> Yeah,
0: I mean, that panel you mentioned with the, like, kind of torture montage, that thing, you had already done the script, and I'm like, well, someone's going to call that one out. Because that that drawing is just, it's amazing and painful to look at. It's, it's like you said, it's beautiful, but you kind of don't want to say that. <laughs> it's, like, really well done. So, that's our first story. Rich is going to hit a, hit you with a little, a little short one here. We got a couple of shorties coming up. And for the first of them, hey, here's Rich. The
1: long-awaited return of Day After Doomsday, all original material. Two pages, script by Len Ween. art by Bill Drought. I'm going to read you a little bit of a poem. Story goes a little something like this. As the last man on earth sat alone in a room, there was a knock on the door. So he lunged for his gun, picked it up on the run, and cautiously moved across the dirt floor. Then he flung the door wide, took a quick peek outside. There was nobody, nothing in sight. Save a letter he found laying there on the ground. He was stunned. Someone knew how to write. He read it over fast, then let out a short gasp, and slowly he regained his breath. Then he started to laugh toward the letter in half. Thank God, he thought he was 4F. And the telegram says, Greetings, you are hereby ordered to appear for induction into service of your country on Friday, April 26th. That's your local draft board with a draft number on <laughs> So no killjoy for that, obviously. A little C&C. It's called The Shortest Horror Story Ever Written is that first block. As the last man on Earth sat alone in his room, there was a knock at the door. This, Like I said, this is the first original Day After Doomsday story to appear in Weird War, and it was worth the wait. Page two, panel one is my fave. The look of shock on the bearded man's face as he reads the letter.
0: Yep, I gotta say, as Daffy Duck once taught us, there is no escaping. The little man from the draft board. Full points for this one, not only just for being really fun, but for completely saving the Day After Doomsday feature in two short pages. The poetic format was nice. It had me thinking of Twas the Night Before Christmas the whole way through. The logistics of the letter's arrival don't really matter, as the execution of the whole thing is just too good to let you worry about it. On page one, panel three, I feel this captures the last man's wariness and confusion perfectly. You can see that he's on guard, but also truly wondering if he's finally lost his mind. It's just great stuff. And as I said, redemption for a feature I have uh, consistently pooped on <laughs> throughout Weird War Tales here. Uh, it's it's on the way up. Gotta say, this this was a lot of fun. So our next little short feature is called Dreams of Death. I'm getting all the ones with death in the title here. All right, so this one is three pages long. script. Don't think about much. it too much. <laughs> <laughs> script is by our good buddy, yeah, yeah, I wonder, hmm, here, Max, read these. So, <laughs> script is by our good buddy, uh, the veteran Jack Olek, pencils by other veteran Ernie Chan, and inks by some some guy named Tex, Tex Blaisdell. You know, veteran status, I don't know off the top of my head as far as a veteran of the series. Synopsis for this three-pager goes a little something like this. Baron Manfred von Richthofen. That's that's a... If you're going to have a name of a German in a comic, that's just right there. Wolf Schmidt was pretty good, too. Anyway, Baron Manfred von Richthofen is awakened from a nightmare by his adjutant, Karl. Fancy title, regular guy's name. All right. For 13 nights, he'd been having the same dream. Death, hot on his tail, flying an enemy spad while dressed in the robes of a bishop. The Baron knew it was a prophecy that he was going to die in the air. But why did death dress like a bishop? Richthofen continued to fly missions and run up his score until one day a spad got behind him that the Red Baron, you know, so as people may know, Baron Manfred von Richthofen was the Red Baron, the one that was always trying to kill Snoopy, that the Red Baron couldn't evade. He was killed in the cockpit and his triplane fell to earth, wreathed in flames. Records say Rick toffin was shot down by a young Canadian pilot, but don't mention dreams of a skeleton dressed in Bishop's robes pursuing him. Perhaps they should. For the name of that pilot, at least in this story, was Bishop. Killjoy! Killjoy, <laughs> killjoy is coming! Killjoy, 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 Let me killjoy. mute my mic, because here comes Rich, baby. Here you go.
1: With a history minute tacked on, I have to jump on the colorist right off the bat. Why? Long pause. Isn't the red Baron's Fokker DR1 triplane colored red? Page two, panel two. Oh, look, even wrote it in the story. You had one job. I mean, come on. The roundels on the British plane are jacked up to page three, panel two, which paradoxically is actually my favorite panel. There are no feed trays on the machine guns and no windscreen between them. Canadian Billy Bishop scored 72 times during World War I, making him the top British Empire ace. That said, it was not Bishop who was credited with shooting down the Red Baron on April 21st, 1918, over France, but Canadian Roy Brown, an ace with 10 kills. In actuality, it's strongly believed, based on eyewitness accounts and Ritthofen's autopsy, that it was ground fire from the Australian 24th Machine Gun Company that brought the Red Baron down. He was struck in the chest by a single 303 round. The war's top ace, 80 victories, was only 25 years old when he was killed, and the British buried him with full military honors. There's actually a short, silent video of it online. Look for it. Worth the effort. Maybe I'll remember to put the link on the Facebook page or uh, something.
0: Yeah, he will, eventually. He won't be able to help himself. Ah, oh, So let's see here. Comments and commendations. While I had... A lot of fun reading that synopsis and jumping all over the place in it. I got to say, despite a simply amazing splash panel, which it really was, I had my hopes way up when I saw that, this story fell flat for me. I mean, three pages more or less wasted on a get it? The guy's name was Bishop punchline. Eh. As I said, that splash panel is just an awesome piece of work, but the story that follows just doesn't deliver on it even a little bit for me. This felt like the filler that day after doomsday usually feels like, in fact, so that's mine.
1: Yeah, see, I was going to say I made it this far without a Snoopy reference, but, you know, Max torpedoed that shit for me, so thanks, man. <laughs> <laughs> I love my World War One aviation stories, as you all know. But yeah, the art struggled at times. I have to cut Olick some slack on the Bishop Brown name swap because having the Barons scream about death in a Browns uniform conjures up visions of a pilot flying in a football uniform for a team that wouldn't exist until 1945. Although that would certainly be weird, eh? A fun, short story. I liked it overall.
0: Hey. It, they could have worked it in about, you know, it being a code brown because he was so scared you know, of this person he kept seeing in his dreams. But, you know, uh, maybe it, that's a little bit weird war tales meets plop, so to speak.
1: Or Deadpool. <laughs> this guy has the right idea. He wore the brown pants.
0: <laughs> hey, man, I, I just worked in a code brown leading to plop. And I feel I deserve more recognition for that. But anywho, our are two short real shorts out of the way, Rich is going to hit you with the final story in the issue, which is also kind of short, but longer than these two combined.
1: Homecoming. Six pages, script by Jack Olek. Again, art by Frank Redondo. Private Saunders is the kind of replacement a unit is better off not getting and just staying shorthanded. He and another replacement, Pierce, jump off a helicopter in the middle of a mortar barrage and run for cover. When the sergeant tells him to unsling his rifle and get ready to fight off the enemy that always follows the barrage... Saunders throws him his rifle and cowers behind cover as the rest of the Americans repulse the Vietnamese. He only wants to live and see his folks and girl again. The sergeant is furious afterwards and gives Saunders a choice: go on patrol or get court-martialed. He had no choice and chose the patrol. Snipers begin to whittle the patrol down, and the two replacements run for their lives as rockets begin to fall. Three days pass, and Saunders is at the end of his rope, starving in this stinking green rat trap. Pierce had warned him to space out his rations, but Saunders hadn't listened. There's only one can of sea rats left. Not much to split two ways. Saunders is a little mad by that. He guns down Pierce so he can have all the food. He has to make it back to the command post so he can go home. Engrossed and eating chow, Saunders doesn't hear the enemy coming behind him until it's too late. He's shot and taken prisoner. Saunders is in bad shape when he arrives at a prison compound and the questioning begins. Insisting that he doesn't know anything because he's only a private, the Reds give him a vicious beating. In his delirium, he sees his girl, Joanne, smiling over him. His parents are there, too. In the months that follow, visions of his loved ones keep Saunders alive through all the enemy puts him through. But one day, instead of a beating, the guards give him news. There's a ceasefire. The war is over. Saunders is going home. A few weeks later, the coward gets a hero's welcome on his return stateside. Oddly, his loved ones aren't waiting for him. He takes a cab home and is astonished to see his house as a run-down shack. Worse, his parents aren't happy to see him. Get a job so we can pay some bills! This isn't the way it was, the way it was supposed to be. Saunders flees in search of Joanne and finds her at a bar. But she's changed too, and is nothing more than a cheap tart hanging on men. Nothing is how he remembered it he couldn't have made it up. Hours passed. Lost in thought. He was a coward and always had been. Can't live like this. He buys a gun and goes to a landfill to end it all. That won't solve anything, a voice behind him interjects. It's Pierce, but he was dead. It didn't matter. Saunders puts the gun to his temple and pulls the trigger, but nothing happens. Who are you? Saunders cries. Let me die. I'd be better off dead and in hell. Pierce sighs. Haven't you figured out yet what really happened to you that day you were wounded in Nam? Don't you know who I am and where you are? You died that day. You think you'd be better off and in hell? Fool. Where do you think you are? And Pierce changes into Satan. Satan! Satan, maybe? Killjoy, History Minute. The H-34 Choctaw on page two, panel two, looks too scrunched up. Maybe it's perspective, but the rotor circle is certainly too small. Page one, panel one, as usual. The insignia colors on the fuselage are wrong. Hell, I thought they were south of Vietnamese at first, with the yellows and reds. Also, you have an Army Green Beret yelling at the soldiers as they dismount from the helicopter. But it's marked Marines on the side. The UH-34 was Marine-specific in-country. Did they just catch a ride on a Marine bird? Certainly happened. I guess Redondo could have shut me up by drawing a standard UH-1 Huey. But on the flip side, I don't know what a Green Beret is doing leading what appears to be a run-of-the-mill patrol, either. If you didn't catch the It's a Wonderful Life vibe in the story at the end, it's probably because you never saw the movie, commie. That being said, it does give us a sterling opportunity to talk about the military service of the legendary Jimmy Stewart. Stewart was born in Indiana, Pennsylvania, the town of my alma mater, about an hour northeast of Pittsburgh. There's a museum and a statue by the town hall. Taking up acting in 1932, in 1940, he won a Best Actor Oscar for The Philadelphia Story. Recognizing that war was coming, Stewart became the first major American movie star to enlist in the United States Army to fight in World War II in February 1941, well before Pearl Harbor. As an experienced amateur pilot, he reported for induction as a private in the Air Corps on March 22, 1941. Soon to be 33 years old, he was over the age limit for aviation cadet training the normal path for commissioning for pilots, navigators, and bombardiers, and therefore applied for an Air Corps commission as both a college graduate and a licensed commercial pilot. Stewart received his commission as a second lieutenant on January 1st, 1942. After enlisting, Stewart made no new commercial films, although he remained under contract to MGM. His public appearances were limited to engagements for the Army Air Forces on network radio and in the first motion picture unit, short film Winning Your Wings to Help Recruit Airmen. Nominated for an Academy Award for Best Documentary in 1942, it appeared in movie theaters nationwide beginning in late May 1942 and resulted in 150,000 new recruits. Stewart was concerned that his celebrity status would relegate him to duties behind the lines. After spending over a year training pilots in Albuquerque, New Mexico, he appealed to his commander and was sent to England as part of the 8th Air Force to pilot a B-24 Liberator in November 1943. Stewart was promoted to major following a mission to Ludwigshafen, Germany, on January 7, 1944. He was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross three times during the war and the Air Medal four. Promoted to full colonel on March 29, 1945, Stewart was one of the few Americans to ever rise from private to colonel in only four years. In all, Stewart flew 20 combat missions over Europe, bombing Berlin, Schweinhardt, Brunswick, Bremen, and Frankfurt. He didn't fly the easy milk-run missions. Stewart returned to the United States at B.E. Day in early fall 1945. He continued to play a role in reserve of the Army Air Forces after the war and would eventually transfer to the reserves of the United States Air Force after the Army Air Forces split from the Army in 1947. During active duty periods, he served with the Strategic Air Command, completed transition training as a pilot of the B-47, same as my great-uncle Bill, and B-52. On July 23, 1959, Stewart was promoted to Brigadier General, becoming the highest ranking actor in American military history. During the Vietnam War, he flew as a non-duty observer in a B-52 on an Arc Light bombing mission in February of 1966. He served for 27 years, officially retiring from the Air Force on May 31, 1968, when he reached the mandatory retirement age of 60. In 1985, Stewart was promoted to the rank of Major General, two-star, on the Air Force retired list. Stewart's first movie after World War II was It's a Wonderful Life in 1946. Legend has it he was suffering from post-traumatic stress from the war, and the scene where he was contemplating suicide on the bridge was aided by a PTSD episode. But Stewart was such an accomplished actor, who's to truly say? All in all, if you didn't respect Stewart before this segment, you sure as hell should now. c and the first Vietnam story in WWT. And Saigon hadn't fallen yet in 1974. Instead of Clarence, you got Satan. How does that work in hell? Every time a bell rings, that demon gets his horns, another cowardly murderer gets his justice desserts. Redondo did a lot of work at Sarge Rock when I was growing up, so this art is very familiar to me. Great stuff. I totally dig the dead Viet Cong narrator wielding an older Soviet PPSH-41 submachine gun instead of an AK-47.
0: Yeah, first of all, that killjoy and history minute. Um... I didn't know any of that, obviously, and I uh, had no idea that Jimmy Stewart was such a badass at all. So so, yeah, people chew on that if you're like me and just thought like he was a guy um, who looked like he stepped out of a Norman Rockwell painting and whom Jim Carrey did an awesome impression of. There's there's a whole lot more under the hood, apparently. So about and I got to say also the host at the start of the story. Yeah, was a great touch. I love that drawing. I love the twist on how the host usually looks for a weird war tale story. So all that I'm in agreement with for my particular CNC. I'll say the whole It's a Wonderful Life Satan Edition vibe didn't really work for me. Instead of what if I had never been born? The angle here is what if I was gone longer than I thought? and things were also very different than I thought they were to begin with. I I don't know. It's weird. It's a bit clunky. Like I said, I see what they were trying to homage there, but I feel like they did it with a meat tenderizer. So, plus, on page five, panel six, the part where Saunders looks in on Joanne and thinks, she's just a cheap dot 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 rings the old comics man bell pretty soundly, doesn't it? So, I guess the point was to give Saunders the worst homecoming possible. Other than the, uh, Heroes welcome. He got at the top of page five, which is not what I've heard. A lot of people got when they came back from Vietnam. But hey, you know, so the you're in hell angle works, but just barely for me. The art was far better than the story, in my opinion. Of course, we've got Redondo here, who again, I've forgotten. Um, and I'll have Rich explain to me one more time why he signs a Q when his name is Frank.
1: I don't freaking know people play games with different you know pseudonyms or whatever
0: yeah if anyone out there does know because we got some people out there that are pretty deep in the war comics minutiae um hit us with it because I'd I'd love to know and I'm not
1: gonna look it up it's not gonna happen so... well just just to, you know foreshadow next episode uh one of the writers uh first time appearance he had like like five pseudonyms you know so it's just <laughs> pick one yeah
0: yeah that's I mean it. comics are rife with them I mean first of all Stan Lee and Jack Kirby are not their birth names <gasps> you know like say it ain't so they had moonlighting names so they wouldn't get caught working for another shop it's just I don't know what the deal is with Redondo's um and I'm, I'm gonna be too lazy and scatterbrained to look it up so we're gonna move on from the story content in the issue which we're finished with now to the letters page which we call APO Weird War Tales because that's what they call it. And my spotlighted uh, letter here is going to be from Lloyd Cole from Bronx, New York. And he writes in to say, Dear Joe, Weird War number no. 25 was in many ways far superior to your other weird comics. I particularly enjoyed Nino's Unseen Warrior, although it had a weak ending. Cashdan had two fairly good plots. I hope to see more of his work as well as Nino's artwork in the future. My compliments to you. It seems like every mag you come in contact with improves or at least takes new directions. And Joe writes back, and this is the real reason I picked... The letter is, is in Joe's response here. Your theory will be coming to a test sooner than you imagine. Weird War Tales fans should be sure to pick up the next issue of Star-Spangled War Tales, featuring the unknown soldier, number 183, November-December, as Yee Editor takes over and tries to bring to it some of our special magic. The series will be written and illustrated by the team that collaborated on this issue's lead story, David Michelinie and Jerry Talaok. It'll be coming your way August 22nd. Please don't miss it. So we have Michelinie and Talaok taking over the unknown soldier presaged in this letters column.
1: I've never heard of this title, Star-Spangled War Tales. Star-Spangled War Stories, on the other hand, that's that one I'm familiar with. (laughs) Letters page killjoy. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody's got to do it. My missive is from Robert DeGroff from Baywood Park, California. Dear Joe, I had been meaning to write a letter to Weird War Tales for quite a while. After reading number 25, I just cannot put it off any longer. From Dominguez's cover to the final panel of Nino's superb tale, I was absolutely engrossed. I have been an avid comic fan for the past 14 years, but it is only in the last two years that I have been a fan of war comics. Alfredo Wakala is without a doubt... One of the finest artists in the business today. His ability to create those heavy clouds of mood make him especially effective in Weird War. Yeah, I love that stuff. He certainly is your best man for handling offbeat war themes. The Unseen Warrior, at first glance, looked like a loser. But I'm enough of a Nino fan and have enough respect for Cash to know that any story bearing their names at least deserves a careful reading. And I was not disappointed. It was not great by any means, but I had to conclude that the story was well handled considering limitations. It was simply entertaining. Now for some suggestions. First, I like Dominguez covers, but would really like to see some of what other artists might do with your themes. You know what they say about variety and spice. Second, how about some different cover themes based on some of the science fiction tales which pop up all too infrequently in WWT? Third, please continue to vary your artists. Your call for letters at the bottom of the text in number 25 really scared me. I know a comic must be successful to survive, and I know that one must measure of success as reader reaction. So here I am. And Joe responds with, Taking your suggestions in order. First, using one regular cover artist helps maintain a magazine's identity, particularly when the magazine uses numerous artists on the interior stories. Second, cover themes as well as stories revolving around science fiction have a very poor track record in comics. So keep WWT successful, we will use them minimally, mainly for variety. Third, we most certainly will vary our artistic staff. For instance, this issue we gave Alcala a rest after five consecutive appearances. Last, a comment on your comment. Reader reaction is a very important part of any magazine's success. WWT has always been weak in that direction. We are very anxious to receive more mail from you. So the longest letter on the letters page and a very solid one, I must say. Yeah, that's like
0: the kind that Joe Kubert used to ask for. You know, thoughtful, well well constructed. (laughs) damn it as soon as he leaves the book man they start listening to him (laughs) so that's the letters page this time around and we're gonna move on to our spotlighted ads of the issue take it away rich
1: nothing was even remotely interesting to me until i got to the back cover and found browning bicycles when you're big enough for a 10-speed, you're big enough for a Browning. And it shows this guy in a sh- two short shorts and a gray t-shirt hoisting up a green bike over his head with one hand. The name Browning has helped a lot of people over the years. Just ask your dad or grandpa what a tough, reliable hunting gun a Browning is. Browning rods and reels have tamed all kinds of fighting fish from Peoria to the Pacific. And today, a Browning grade 1 10-speed can help you get to school faster, take any hill you can find, and get in shape for the team. <laughs> it just goes on and on. And the grade one has reflectors on the front, back, spokes, and pedals, so it's safer if you get caught out after dark. Take your pick of four of the greatest colors in town. Candy apple red, metallic blue, bronze green, and Aztec yellow. This great bike also comes in a girls five-speed model, with easy-to-use trigger shifter right next to your grip. Why don't you and your dad take a peek at brownie bikes at your brownie dealer downtown? <laughs> it doesn't say how much the bikes are, but it's... Actually, I take that back. Yes, it does. Grade one men's ten speed, one hundred and thirty-six dollars and fifty cents, and the girls' three speed is you know one hundred sixteen fifty. So again, girls getting screwed. What else do you want? Ah, oh, it's the seventies. Oh
0: man, in nineteen seventies money. That's that better, be a, that better be a good ten speed, man. I love how he's like you said, hoisting it over his head like freaking. uh Presaging again, I'm using that word this episode, people, it's just going to keep happening, you know, uh, presaging the arrival of He-Man, which I'm going to talk about again in my ad coming up here. And that is a two-page ad for Big Jim's Kung Fu and Sports Action Sweepstakes. So Big Jim was a toy line that lasted from 1972 to 1986 from Mattel it was an attempt to cash in on GI Joe to to follow cuz GI Joe was floundering itself at this period it had like the GI Joe adventure line it didn't know what the heck to do with itself until it was reborn in the mid 80s around when Big Jim died uh so we had characters like Big Jeff, Big Josh, and Big Jack that were part of his team. And another bit of trivia I found out about this, you know, or I refreshed myself on because I'm a bit of a toy nerd, folks, as you may be picking up on, is that these toys were also sold as licensed, probably licensed, 007 toys in Latin America in the 80s. So they just swapped it out and acted like these were James Bond figures. So Big Jim later on uh, adopted, like, this kind of super team name, the Pack. And, you know, they had like super villains coming in later in the line. And to bring up the He-Man thing, the tiger trap tiger for the big gym line was the exact mold used for He-Man's battle cat. They just repainted that thing and used it and went, hey, guess what? He-Man fits on there. We're good. So so Battle Cat comes from Big Jim. The the ad itself here shows some pretty cool stuff on display. You get Big Jim's Kung Fu Studio, which is like kind of a Mego style fold out little kind of karate dojo looking place where you can get your Big Jim figure and practice kung fu with with other figures and whatnot there's this action accessory for the kung fu figure called big jim's muscle mover where you're basically stabbing in the back with a little gun that looks like a power tool squeezing a trigger to make him do a little karate chop again they're trying to riff on gi joe here and he had the kung fu grip he had you know gi joe could chop a block of wood with his hand so you've got big jim chopping a board in half here you've got different sports gear and everything now that the hook of the ad as you complete a puzzle on the page, here, it's like a little crossword puzzle, send it in and you can get a hundred dollars worth of these toys sent to you. So I thought like, okay, you know, it, it seems a little desperate to be given a hundred dollars worth of these toys away, considering this is only two years into the line's history, but Hey, maybe stunts like this actually helped generate interest. Cause again, this, this line kind of trundled on and breathed its last 14 years after it began. And really that you you hardly meet anyone who's ever heard of it so that ad jumped out to me and uh, so for, like that Browning ad, a classic, I, I love the graphics. I love the wording and I was glad Rich picked that one. And then I had to jump all over Big Jim's Kung Fu because I had some of the Big Jim toys. They had Jack Kirby art on the boxes. So, and, and like I said, I, I'm kind of a toy nerd anyway to this day. So so that one was just made for me. So the ad section, I promise you I'm done talking about it. We're going to move on <laughs> to our section called Got Any Last Words? and unfortunately. I'm first in the script, so I'm going to keep talking. And I'm going to say, overall, this issue was kind of a mixed bag for me, really. Not a bad issue at all, you know, I'll be clear, but some squandered potential that kind of soured the milk for me in some spots. The cover is an all-timer, though, and half of the stories really worked for me. So I really, I can't say it's bad at all.
1: Four fun stories, a good cover, great letters page, crappy ads, the only thing holding this issue back, usually one of the best issues yet. Four stars, when it took a while for me to decide on elements of
0: death as my favorite story. Crappy ads, how dare you? So we move on to uh, a little section we like to call the Dead Letter Office, where we talk about feedback we get from from our listeners on Gmail, Twitter, and Facebook. We like to kind of mention in vain that we still have over on RedBubble.com, for now until I move it someplace else, the Weird Warriors Podcast PX, where you can get our logo on just about anything you can think of. I promise you, you can. <laughs> and again, it's on redbubble.com. Search Weird Warriors Podcast, get yourself some gear. We'll see you at the cons. All right. <laughs> so, over on Twitter, people stop by to say hey. And those people were Dr. Pop Culture, BGSU, Chris Leiden, uh, source material uh, from at SourceMatCast, the Source Material Podcast, our buddy Kirk Spencer at Big Five Army, Mike Romero. Coffee and Comics, Clinton Robinson from the Coffee and Comics podcast, Doc Strange, Mr. Billy Delicious himself, Dave's Comics Heroes blog, Iowa's Joe, Iowa's Joe Crawford stopped by, Luke, Jack and of the Earth Destruction Directive podcast, and we had the Telltale Mind swing by as well. Over on Facebook, we have Peter Watson and David Steele from the Earth 2 podcast, our constant buddy or Herschel Mimis stopped by Tim DeForest with the old time radio and comics blog and Billy D stopped by on Facebook too, as he likes to. And Luke Ed who is a pseudonym for someone else we knew also stop by on the Facebook page and Tim DeForest and I had a conversation about whether or not some of the weird war tale stories could all take place in the same world, like a shared continuity. So to get the lowdown on conversations like that, swing on over to the Facebook page and see what's up people. Rich gives you tons of stuff to do over there over on Twitter. I'm just kind of like sort of hanging out, reminding you that we're still alive, but over on Facebook, Rich is just like putting on a show and we actually have conversations and stuff. So come on in. So over on Gmail, speaking of conversations, we got two people that wrote in, one of which is the aforementioned Billy D, and he stopped by to say, hey, guys. Great to hear you back after a break. We're not on a break. It's the summer slowdown. We've talked about this. It's still once a month, which is more regular than some podcasts I could mention. So he says, the story about the Invisible Soldier sounds great. The Invisible Man is my favorite universal horror flick. It wasn't always, but... It's surely won me over because of the absolute lunacy of the characters and just how brutal the villain is in that film. Looking forward to more soon. Thanks for doing what you guys do. And then I, you know, complained to him that we're not on a break. Q Ross from Friends. You know, we were on a break. It's on a break. (laughs) The other person to write in, I bet some of you can guess. Just before we started recording, I checked the Gmail and saw that the founder and sole owner of the binge listener award jason zeller jason wrote in to say happy fourth of july max and rich and he said hey rich that was a great french accent it sounded authentic i was kidding people i was kidding it was terrible but anyway
1: i thought it was pretty damn good (laughs) 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 shoulder pat myself in the back the listeners (laughs) (laughs) agree Well, I am. Um, I took French in high school. I took French in college. I've been to France a few times. Come on, work from here.
0: It wasn't, it wasn't cartoony enough for me, sir. It was probably too accurate. And my Philistinian ears didn't pick up on it. I so, didn't have
1: enough Pepe Le Pew going. Is that what the problem right?
0: <laughs> To me, it's Pepe Le Pew, the Holy Grail, or I don't know what you're talking about. French so. talker <laughs> Exactly. Jason goes on to say, I missed the DC Staffers reference too. So he shares my shame in that. The first story was pretty good. And and I was not sure what the twist was going to be. The ending made me think of the end of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, in which the bad guy drinks from the wrong cup instead of the grail and quickly turns into an old man, then a skeleton, then a pile of dust. I also liked the Walt Disney's Haunted Mansion ad, as that looks very good. I would have really enjoyed those scenes as a kid. As an adult, I was finally able to ride the Haunted Mansion ride. The ride was awesome, but the ending surprised me when you see a mirror with a ghost in it saying, Be seeing you soon in your state, and dropped the name of my state. So, you know, Disney is totally spying on you with surveillance technology, if you if you didn't already assume that. And uh, Jason goes on to say, I knew you would be happy, Max, when they assured everyone they were working on the Day After Doomsday storyline. Won't it be so fun to continue this series? Actually, it was when they came back. So I got to eat my words a little bit on that one, but I'm used to it. So Jason says at the beginning of the second story, I thought of the new solicitations of Sergeant Rock versus the Army of the Dead. Before I realized the super soldiers power was like the invisible man has a familiar setting with the allies on the verge of ending the war and a last ditch effort on the part of the Nazis. Will you guys be checking out this new Sergeant Rock series? No, never.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah,
0: It's really not in our wheelhouse. I'm sorry. (laughs) He says, I, did, this <laughs> I did enjoy this story and was wondering how they would stop the invincible invisible man so yeah i love that it's like nah jason we have who's sergeant rock never heard of him who's bruce campbell just some b movie actor i'm not interested <laughs> so that's the dead letter office out of the way the issue's wrapped up people so what's left it's left for rich to hit you with the teaser for the next
1: episode Weird War Tales 31, because you don't want to start your Christmas shopping yet. Unless it's for us. We like comics. Premonition. Incarnation. arm wrestling. Beware for whom the old comics man bell may toll. It tolls for thee. For free. Whee! Oh, dear God. Dude. <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: been a long summer. <laughs> it sure does toll for me. Let me tell you, it's been tolling for me for a long time. So, that wraps up another episode of the show, people. This has been the Weird Warriors podcast. We have been the Weird Warriors. We have been the Batlam Bros. I'm Max. He is rich. And we promise to make
1: war. No more. <laughs>